I'm John Dykstra. Here today with me are Scott Stockdyke and Anthony LaMolinara. Anthony was the director of animation. Scott's the visual effects supervisor for SPI Imageworks, and I am the visual effects designer. This title sequence was done by Imaginary Forces. The um, important part of the relationship between the people in visual effects and the people who were doing the title sequence was obviously the web. We had to um, work with them to come up with a web that would give the impression of the type of web that's in the movie but keep the stylized quality that uh, our director wanted to have for the title sequence. Some of the uh, volumes that you see here, the Spider-Man character, the hand, the goblin's face, um, was geometry that was interpreted from geometry that we used for our virtual character. And they took that, simplified that geometry and put it into the sequence. And again, they were trying for something that wasn't real. They were looking for a stylized version of the web and the characters that they presented in the title sequence. And I think they were successful with it. So we did share, there you are. Yeah, there I am, that's me. Visual effects designed by. Yep. So we did share something. We shared a couple models, passed some models over there. Yep. Actually, I hope we get to do the next one. <laughs> <laughs> the next set of tiles. The next exactly. opening sequence. I think this is really interesting because it's sort of this kind of period graphic that uh, goes on the front end of a movie that is uh, fairly starkly real. If we'd had to do these as photorealistic looking webs over the course of this huge sequence, it would have taken months. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, this is the web transition from our stylized web into the real web, the opening scene of the film. The background for this was shot in New York in a practical environment and then tracked and they put the synthetic web from the title sequence as an overlay across the cross dissolve to create the opening sequence. I'd like to tell you that's me next Originally, wasn't it going to be some sort of cross dissolve behind her head where the bus materialized in there. Do you remember that, John? Yeah, there was a whole, there were, there were a couple of different ideas of introducing the opening sequence of the film, introducing Mary Jane, whom the story is about, as is said in the monologue over. But uh, this was the, this was chosen as the, uh, the best means to make that transition because it didn't uh, leave us looking at her for a huge amount of time at the beginning of the movie. Don't even think about it. There's so 
It's a good look for Toby with those classes like that. <gasps> and like that. <laughs> <laughs> we shot all of this stuff. There's the, throughout the film, uh, we used live action locations in New York. And um, in some cases, we shot locations in Los Angeles to be substituted for New York. And in some cases, we created components uh, completely synthetically that are added into both locations in Los Angeles and New York to create our version of, of New York City. Uh, you know, Charles, can we drive around the corner, please? Why? Well, the entrance is right there. Dad, these are public school kids. They're not showing up for the field trip in the rolls. What, you want me to trade in my car for a jet? Just a lot of setup here, a lot of exposition. One of the things that's, um, we can talk about a little bit is, working with Sam was terrific. Um, he's a very collaborative director. And using his version of the script, the script that he basically approved and interpreted to us, um, we started creating the preliminary aspects of the visual effects for this movie. And Sam not only um, welcomed uh, contributions from people who were working on the crew, but also encouraged it. He was, of course, the arbiter of all the stuff that was used in the film as the director. But I think everybody sort of got the feeling that they had a, uh, a vested interest in this movie um, in some very small part as a filmmaker as well as uh, whatever their particular job was. And um, yeah. I think that comes through in the, the sense of this movie. And I think it, I mean, trickled on down through the whole crew, really, our CG supervisors, Ken Han, Peter Knopfs, and Dan Eaton, they all at different points had, had input into the process, too, which was kind of nice. Most advanced electron microscope on the eastern seaboard. It's unreal. Getting close to our first effect shot. The, Any minute now. The atomic spider. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about the telling of this story is it's a period piece in the original origin story. The character's bitten by an irradiated spider, which we, of course, now know if you get bitten by an irradiated spider, probably what'll happen is you'll get radiation poisoning. But in those days, it imbued the character with superhuman capabilities. Rather than use a sort of old saw for this superhero transition, Sam brought the story into a contemporary vein by using the uh, DNA basis, this genetic, this genome splicing um, capability to be the component that caused the transition from our normal kid to the superhero character of Spider-Man. And it's sort of that contemporary science, I think, brings the film into a much more contemporary sense. And of course, when she describes all the characteristics of all these spiders, you, everyone's thinking what Spider-Man's going to be able to do with all those powers. Right, it'll be a, a spider trapped in a man's body. <laughs> Dying to get out. Help me, help me. Over five painstaking years, Columbia's genetic research facility Can you talk to her now? The genetic oh. Oh, come on. It's also part of how Spider-Man 
moves in the sense that his molecular structure has been changed after this bite so that he no longer moves according to the physical rules of the world as we know it with, with human bodies, but something combined between human and spider. Like a spider man? Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. One of the things I'd point out too in this, uh, in the live action material, um, the personality of these these characters, both Toby and when and Willem, when we see him, well, we've already seen him once, but um, they are they are the uh, basis for our our hero and our villain, and uh, their postures, their positions, and their body language is an important important part of defining them as a character and keeping an eye on that trying to integrate that into the characters once they are masked and dressed in costume I think was a very important part of uh, making the character seem uh, like he was an extension of the the actor as we have seen him without the costume here's Toby getting ready to take his photo you did a lot of photography a long time ago, didn't you, John? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was me, actually. <laughs> I got bitten by a spider. It bit me in my visual effects lobe. Trying and to get the girls with that was, taking pictures Oh, yeah, of. well, I did. I, was a st I did fashion photography when I was in college. It was terrific. Right. We'd do a, do a set of uh, a head sheet. There's our first effect shot. There you go. Right, a beautiful crawling spider. That pesky spider. Great. And of course, a close-up is coming up, which was a lot hard, harder on many levels. That was a real spider, and <laughs> stand by. This guy actually left his spider crawl on his hand. This wasn't Toby. <laughs> the guy quit. The guy who did the spider shot quit. This bite is so short, it was quite a much longer shot. And we just see a little snippet of it, the actual bite because he actually sits on his hands and really grinds into his fangs for a while. Parker, let's do it. Now what, to, to get that, that close-up of that hand that the close-up spider bite was on, John, you wanna Well, talk yes, about Scott, that? I'd be pleased to tell you about <laughs> that. The, uh, First the, map painting, by the way. The extreme close-up of the hand was done with a very special piece of optics that's designed for it's called micro, photomicroscopy, uh, which is mic microscopic photography. And we used uh, special strobe lights to illuminate the hand to uh, give us enough brightness to make the entire surface of the hand be in relative focus. And uh, that was recorded at high speed to cut down on the, the quivering of the person's hand so we could put our CG spider on there. And I talked right over the part where the guy <laughs> landed the glider. Right, we were just looking at our first couple of effect shots where it was a practical glider, but we added all our glider effects, where we added heat distortion thrusters coming out the bottom, and, and heat distortion. And heat distortion. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about this, again, you know, Sam's concept for this movie was that he wanted it to be real. It's not Metropolis, it's not Gotham, it's real New York City, right down to the pigeon droppings and the, and the rust stains underneath the drain pipes. And uh, throughout the film, he uh, would pursue or ask us to pursue uh, a very, quote, real, end quote, effect in all of these environments. And 
one of the toughest things to do when we started making virtual versions of the characters and the objects that appeared in this movie was putting in high frequency noise. By that I mean the dirt and the dust and the debris that uh, populates our real life. It's the dust bunnies under the bed, it's the stains on the wall, the pigeon droppings on the windowsill. And that stuff is the toughest thing for a computer to do because it's random. It's bas basically a chaotic event. So although we were successful, and Scott can say more about what uh, procedural things we came up with, but in many cases we essentially had our artists go back in and, and add dirt to uh, many of the sequences to give you the visual cues that this is a real thing and not a computer-generated thing. A lot of texture work on this movie. Many thousand textures, probably. I think we figured out there are 62,000 textures painted. What, what a texture is a? It's basically just a color map that's mapped onto objects and represents its texture, if you will. It represents its look uh, and how. Just like taking the textures from uh, Toby's face and laying them on the model of of Toby's face to achieve the, the look and try to make, a, make it look realistic. Yeah, for clarification's purposes though, the texture is basically a photograph. It starts out as a photograph. Yeah, starts out as a photograph of the surface that you want to reproduce in the computer um, environment and then the artists add to that photograph and then that photograph could be shrink-wrapped or vacuum-formed onto the shape, uh, which is what we call the geometry of the person or the object that we're creating. And because the photograph contains all of that detail, uh, you get that back in your final representation. This is not Tobey Maguire's body. Even though he'd love to have it. It was Tobey's head mapped onto that body and it was a big tracking job and color correction job too. There was a, um, we did some digital color timing on many of these sequences. When you take original photography and bring it into the computer, um, you have to make adjustments to the color. Not so much to change it, but to make sure that when you take it back out of the computer, it will look like the original photography. The reason you do that, here's a, this is a nice matte painting, the Oscorp uh, image. Done by Evo, one of our guys in the matte painting department. The um, image that comes out of the computer needs to cut back into the movie adjacent to real uh, original negative. So rather than make the new image be uh, significantly different than what the original photography was, the attempt is to try and make it uh, match the original photography. So when they do color correction on the movie overall, everything falls into place. But in many of these sequences, especially where we do extensive numbers of cross dissolves and fades, you have scene-to-scene um, uh, -scene color timing that's critical. So we did an awful lot of digital color adjustment throughout uh, those montage sequences. And actually, I was wrong before. E Evo, uh, the head of our matte painting department, painted the daytime Oscorp lab exterior, and Dave Bleich painted the nighttime version. The stuff that I like is these little deals where, like, uh, Norman Osborn, when he puts him in this thing, this high drama moment, and he goes, ah, it's cold. 
when he straps him in. I think that's pretty, pretty this, interesting. We're coming up to the green gas modification shots. They didn't want to actually shoot with some toxic green gas for some reason. I don't understand <laughs> it. So our friends at Digiscope uh, did uh, a handful of shots, maybe 10 to 15 color correction shots on the gas. Started out as white smoke and got turned into green. Norman? One of the things that Anthony was talking about earlier was this business of the characters going from being human to superhuman. And uh, one of the things that people talked about uh, was whether or not we used motion capture for our characters. And um, although I have an opinion, and Anthony may have a different one, uh, I think motion capture is kind of an interesting technique to get uh, the detail that defines a person's body language. Motion capture is essentially a series of uh, uh, measurement points that are attached to a person's body, and then you have that person go through a series of moves, and then you record those points, and it allows you to then animate a synthetic version of that character. And uh, when we did our motion capture, we got all of this high-frequency detail that was really great uh, in terms of defining a character's personality. But one of the problems with it is if you have the character jump off of a three-foot-high box and land on the floor, all that high-frequency detail gives away immediately that all he did was jump off a three-foot-high box and land on the floor. And that's the point at which the animators had to take over and expand this the personality of this leap into something that would be more appropriate for a hundred foot fall. And it turned out that although the motion capture for high frequency detail was very good, it, that same detail was a giveaway in the situations where we tried to make him do the kinds of things that were superhuman. That's and Toby's real body, by the way, just to cut That's in. Toby's real body, <laughs> superhuman. And as a result, the characters, the principal characters, Goblin and Spider-Man, were keyframe animated, mostly because in order to use the high frequency detail from the motion capture, we had to do so much uh, adjustment to it, it would have taken longer to do it that way than to go ahead and animate it from the top. The other thing about motion capture is it is, uh, as the technology exists right now, it is kind of a cumbersome setup. You have to dress up in a lycra suit and have these big reflective balls stuck all over you and you can't go outside a you know 30 by 30 area so there's there's a lot of new technology that's being developed right now and hopefully it'll be ready very soon that uh, it's just a little less restrictive in how you capture the data and, and what the setup is for it too not that it'll necessarily influence our choice of doing animation or motion capture I know when we when I always tell people how, how pissed off the gorilla got on Hollow Man when we stuck those balls on him. <laughs> and shaved him. <laughs> um, or her. Yeah, we missed it. There were, there were two beautiful wire removals there. Just ah. Him flying out, the doctor flying out, and Willem flying out. Also, as far as motion capture goes, even if, say, a guy from Cirque du Soleil or Incredible Acrobat could swing down between the buildings, 
the, you know, you're saying the technology is not there to be able to capture that in that distance. Yeah, it's too big. And when, that's what I was saying. When you try to com compress that action into a small space, it looks like action compressed into a small space. Uh -huh. So the, the accuracy of the capture is also a curse because if you don't use a real actor, you can tell that it isn't the real actor just because of the way it moves. And anything that a Spider-Man would have to do is certainly shooting a web in one direction and then changing directions. The G-force on his body would, if it didn't rip his arm out of his socket, it'd rip his whole body in half. Um, it's it just impossible for a person to do. And therefore, impossible for a real person to fake. Yeah. Toby, look at his hands there as kind of a precursor to the later close-up of his hands that comes up. Dad. Dad, you all right? Harry. Dad been, Dad's been out for a fun night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, um, a couple of other things, just kind of uh, definitions. One, we decided that the Spider-Man character wanted to be um, a mechanism by which the audience actually got to experience what it would be like to swing between buildings. At the end of the film, um, Sam's desire was for the audience to go away feeling as though they had been Spider-Man. So we gave him a camera and the animators worked with a camera as well as the character much in the same fashion that a skydiver, skydiving team works. The, the guy who's actually doing the performance is photographed by his partner, the skydiving photographer. We're going to see some webs here in a minute. I'll yeah, a lot, of, this. a lot of web shots. Remember guys, the, uh, this was a mechanical rig, by the way. This next gag here, where he catches oh, yeah. all this stuff. He actually did that. Pretty good. Take 156. <laughs> yeah. um, at any rate, we decided that Spider-Man, when he swung through the city, was going to have his own cameraman went with him. And the cameraman had the same kinds of abilities that Spider-Man had, and he also was able to operate the camera. And if you watch carefully, the cameraman gets better over the course of the movie, as does Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> he gets more uh, adept at doing the photography. At any rate, uh, that's another means by which we added this sense of reality to things. Here comes, uh, this is a practical, I think the first one's a practical web. Yeah. And then that's, that's a real a one, and then this is... Actually, that last one was CG, and then it, they, they yeah. recut it, so that first one was our effect shot. Okay. That's practical, and then if we can keep up with the... I can't <laughs> even tell anymore. Yeah, but uh, one of our guys, Theo, kind of set up this great web system, including the dynamics and the shading, just to be multi-purpose, to work for small webs like this and to work for larger-scale webs later when he's swinging on them. This fight scene coming up, uh, as well as wire work that's in this, where there actually is a wire attached to the character, lifting him up in the air or supporting him from being, you know, so he can lean back uh, and not lose his balance. A lot of these shots were speeded up in just certain sections of the shot to give them more force. Like the first punch is real hard. John, you should probably talk about this. Well, this is a, this is Spider Sense, and it's made up of all of the components that you. Uh, want to see when you think about what Spider-Man can do. It's expanded time. Why don't you talk about the fight? We can go back to Spider-Sense. 
anyway, it's just taking like part of the punch and speeding it up so that there's more force and then slowing it down just at the right moment so that it's not so obvious. And then of course the one, one long shot where we see that arm just glide by him and Toby is seeing everything in slow motion. That's, the, that's another the idea of the spider sense. He's in one temporal realm and everybody else is in a different one. But here, for example, where he grabs Flash's arm, it's speeded up and then it's back to real speed as he holds it, and then it's speeded up again for the punch. Which one? It's all yours, man. There were so many shots over the course of this movie that were sped up and slowed down, and it's, it's kind of both Sam and Bob really loved experimenting with that, and I guess we tried a little bit of it too, didn't we? All right. Spider-Sense, by its very definition, is time expansion. Spider-Man slows everything down so he can go out and inspect all these potential threats. So the beginning of this sequence where you saw the fly being inspected and the spitwad being inspected were events that he had no control over and his Spider-Sense, which is newly developed, just went out and checked out all this stuff. So it gives you a sense of his ineptitude. Now we're coming to a sequence where you're going to see his first experimentation with his newfound powers. That's the spider genetic modification to his wrist. It's not, not, not exactly where the spinneret ought to be, but <laughs> we figured putting it in the right place might be a mistake. Here's the big microscopic hair shot. This is how he climbs up the wall. That was Theo's shot too. A lot of tight tracking work to get those to work too. Oh, here's our first like real digital environment shots actually. Because we had, there are extension shots. That's a fake alley floor there and there. And uh, just our, and, and when we look up on the side, it's all building extensions. But this was also the beginning of this the personality for this camera, the idea that the camera actually rose with him and kind of stayed with him through these moves. Same thing here, keeping the camera uh, with the character as opposed to watching him from afar. So most of this is wire work. It's our video game shots, kind of. <laughs> yeah, we originally were going to do that with a stuntman, but they uh, decided that it was, it was uh, not practical to do. It was a little too dangerous. Here's the first webs that he shoots. The more, like, he's figuring out how to control his webs and how to actually be able to dictate where they go. Up, up and away, web! So the web, this is, this is Theo's work, has a huge range of personalities. It has to come out of his wrist and has to be thin and willowy in some cases, has to be big and strong in others, it has to spread into an actual spider web in some cases, and in other cases it just becomes a lump on somebody's face. So there was an enormous amount of effort that went into defining the web. And if you think about webs in nature, one of the biggest problems with them is, is that they're not visible. In other words, if bugs could see the webs, they wouldn't fly into them. So going in, we knew that in order to meet the expectations of an audience who knows of spiderwebs as basically just glints, that we had to figure out a means by which we could make the web 
be uh, like a spiderweb in the sense that it had what we call a sundog running along the surface defining it with a highlight and also keep enough of the volume of the web there to make the audience feel as though it was strong enough to do whatever it was that we were asking the web to do. Also in that last sequence, there are a number of practical webs intercut with our CG one, so we had to have the web be flexible enough where we could make it look like the practical one or go away from that look when we needed to. That last shot where he was swinging on the web and hits the wall, then we'll see him again almost do the same thing when he's uh, in his homemade Spidey suit and then just miss it at the last moment. So we got, yeah, we got, well, we've got this arc going on for this character, which is he starts out, he's not so facile at doing this when he first gains that capability, and over the course of the film, he gets better and better, uh, and you will see that happen, and you will see the way in which he is followed over the course of the film. The camera work also, I think, uh, gets better and better, so everybody's kind of got this same uh, learning curve. I heard, but I was just taking out the trash. I guess you can always hear us. Well, uh, everybody shouts. Your aunt and uncle don't. It's an interesting thing when we're shooting this stuff. You see these scenes that last, you know, two or three minutes on screen, and yet it takes an entire night to shoot this stuff. This was another situation where color correction was used because the, over the course of the evening, we went from dusk through night and then to dawn. So, and it wasn't necessarily shot in continuity. So in some cases, they're actually taking light out of the scene. In other cases, they're adding light to the scene to make it all be consistent throughout. And hopefully uh, get a job as a... A difficult problem that also on that web when he was on the roof is that, that actual size that it would have to be to see it in the distance is gigantic uh, as opposed to what it really would be, but yet it, I, I buy it when I see it on screen. It's the illusion in the service of the story. And it's the cinemagraphic license <laughs> to make the web change size. The other thing we had to do with those webs was depending on the background they went over, you had to do completely different things with it. It went over like the bright sky background, the wider specular hits you know, wouldn't show up as much and you had to get some dark in there and then your bright sun dogs running down there too. So. And the web itself had several different states. It started out as a fairly liquid material as it was shot from his wrist, and then as it attached to things, it did what we called catalyzation, which was a, a change of state, much like water going from being liquid to, go to becoming ice. And when it changed state, there was, a, there was a difference to the visual personality of the web as well. And you can see it, if you watch carefully, when it strikes a building and sticks. When he starts swinging through the city, you'll see that the web has a transition that actually occurs once it's stuck to a surface. And he also seemed like through some sort of psychophysio process could uh, make the web come out and have different consistencies. One time it would be as hard as steel, it doesn't stretch. Another time it would be elastic and he could just pull on it and pop himself up to a building. You're taller than you look. Just like a mutant spider kid, I'm sure. <laughs> Just like a mutant spider. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't. Come take a ride, my new birthday present. Come on. I gotta go. Bye. Certainly something that I'd like to do in the sequel is put more of Toby's idiosyncrasies into the character, into First, the yeah. digital actor. Yeah. 
There's another alleyway. Lots we of alleyways. A lot of alleyways in this movie. Cool car. John, you were talking about the uh, performance of the digital actor, and, and in this film we're almost working backward, where usually you sort of work from the facial expression down as far as a hierarchy of, of, of what gives expression. And in this case, there is no facial expression. Uh, uh, on Spider-Man, you have maybe a jaw moving, and on Goblin, you have nothing. And uh, so it's a very big challenge to try to let the, this digital actor emote from body movement. Um, and uh, Goblin is, is certainly more complex than Spider-Man in the, his Shakespearean uh, moves and, and, and psychotic personality that goes from kind to uh, sadistic. And, uh, that was a, a very big challenge and something I think we develop more in the next film. The interesting thing to me about the, um, the personality of this character is that uh, Sam asked, and maybe you can give us some input on this, uh, that we use some of the classic Spider-Man poses uh, to sort of brand this character from the comic books. And I know that you and the animators um, had that stuff as reference. Uh, do you have uh, a sense of you know how you integrate that stuff in? Well, certainly we're from all of the comics, and then just try to figure out what what pose works best in any given situation. Uh, if he's perched, waiting for something, certainly in the last swing, there's there are a lot of uh, uh, typical uh, key Spider-Man poses when his hands are raised up over his head and his wrists are arched and fingers in a particular formation. Uh, that's certainly a good example of these kinds of poses, but it comes from the storyboard artist and animators on up through me, through you, through Sam, and through everybody else that's watching the film on a daily basis. The other thing uh, that's interesting is you talked about uh, Willem Dafoe. When we started defining what the goblin was going to be like as a character, we started with this conveyance that he had, the, the goblin glider. And we built a simulator of this glider, and it was sort of like a, it was a motion base with a glider attached. And ultimately, it boiled down to something that's sort of like a mechanical bull, only instead of sitting on it, you had to stand on it. It was an ankle breaker. And we worked with the stunt people to try and figure out a way to either come up with a click track or something that would give them a timing choreography so that when the device moved, they could anticipate the move and position themselves to look as if they were uh, affecting the machine instead of the machine affecting them. And the interesting thing about this was that we weren't real successful with the stunt people. We're still working on it. But when Willem Dafoe showed up, and started to define the character of the Green Goblin. And this is really weird. They brought him in and they stuck him on this machine. And within 15 minutes of riding the machine, and he didn't have them put specific new moves in or anything. This is just him reacting to the machine as an actor. He managed to come up with these, these moves for the Goblin that were just terrific. Um, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, Anthony, but I thought that that was, for me anyway, when I saw him on the machine doing that stuff, I was really encouraged as to how well the character was going to work on the glider. 
And uh, I think that that was uh, well, first experience for me of seeing the actor really define the character uh, for us then to, um, to bring to the screen. Right, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, this sequence um, was really interesting kind of in color correction because their skin tones were so different. He had such a, um, Ben had such a more ruddy, reddish complexion and Toby leaned more towards the olive tones and could go a little green if you weren't careful. So, especially when you have two shots where they're together, this one was kind of tricky, I remember. I remember when Willem came in, uh, he was practicing, the, the pumpkin bombs popped out of the glider. And when he had his mask on, he couldn't see where they were coming from. So he had to learn how to catch the pumpkin bombs that popped up out of the glider just by feel or knowing that he had his hand in the right place. He, he ended up doing a lot of the, the work that stuntmen would have normally done, I guess you were saying. And I think he really dedicated himself to creating a personality, a body language personality for that character. I mean, he, he was, he was uh, so studious in terms of his positions in, in every situation as to whether or not it would be appropriate for the goblin or not. A lot of, go ahead. A lot of our effects guys uh, tried to go in and be extras in different parts of the movies, and uh, one of the guys, Jeff Wolverton, made it into this wrestling match holding a sign, a bone saw sign. Is that Pretty him funny. in the bikini? <laughs> yeah, that's him. That's Jeff on the left. <laughs> I never have spotted him yet, but I'm going to go frame by frame on the DVD and check it out. And of course, it'll be the guy trying to pitch a film. <laughs> Yeah, of course, it, uh, it's the, the thing I didn't realize the first couple times I saw this movie is it's Bruce Campbell who's the who's doing a cameo as an announcer from yeah, all. Yeah, Bruce is, is from Sam's, he's the hero from Sam's uh, movies. Stay at a bit, and you are indeed participating on your own free will? Yes. Down the hall to the ramp. May God be with you. Next. And here's a case, here's a case where it's quite the reverse of the norm that usually what we found is that they couldn't do what they needed to do with a stuntman, so we did it digitally. Whereas in this sequence, uh, it turned out they did most everything with real, uh, either the real actor or a stuntman. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have done bone saw CG, though? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That would have been fun. What's your name, kid? The human spider. The human spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of $3,000 will be paid to the terrifying, the deadly. There is some web work coming up later on in the sequence, and it's more of our elastic type web. Anthony was talking earlier about the different characteristics. In this, in this sequence, Toby uses uh, that web is just a very springy substance to help him do some flips with. Almost like bungee cord. This is another place, although um, they did this actual work on stage, a lot of it, um, this is another case where uh, the Cirque du Soleil performers sort of uh, were used, or performances were used, the idea of the multiple webs is sort of like some of the uh, stuff that the performers do on, on multiple uh, bungee cords in the Cirque du Soleil performances. 
And there were some speed up of some shots in here too, some skip framing or we use different software sometimes to speed it up and make it look a little bit smoother. Please lock the cage doors at this time. Hey, listen, There's some kind of mistake. I didn't sign up for a cage match. Hey, unlock the thing. Take the chain off. Hey, Freak Joe, you're going nowhere. I got you for three minutes. Three minutes of heat time. We also, when we were doing our tests of our homemade costume, we used some of this photography to check out how our, our CG version of the homemade costume would light because we really liked the dramatic lighting in the sequence and it made for a good uh, color comparison kind of check. One of the things that, uh, back to the Screen Goblin thing, we were talking about before, the, uh, one of the things that we did to make the Green Goblin feel uh, as if he were a contemporary character is uh, the motions of him on his glider rather than simply looking like he's standing on top of a small airplane and flying straight and level down the street. Um, we uh, gave him the sense of motion that you get from skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding. Um, that uh, kind of finesse that the characters have in movement and you see in contemporary sports that bring this sort of into a contemporary vein as well. Yeah, the goblin's glider is sort of like his pet, some kind of pet that uh, he can call at will and uh, watches out for him and comes back to him and uh, it, it, we had to give the, the feeling like it he controlled it not completely by body movement. The, almost a thought process is going on as if he had to just lean and it almost knew where to go as opposed to always just uh, sort of pushing it around by, by leaning. It, it, it was partially his body and partially the understanding of the goblin and him as one. What the hell? Put the money in the bag. This homemade costume, it had a, a lot of detail work that was interesting when we made our CG version. One of the first things we did was work on the shoes, which you don't really see in this area here, but had these red Nike sneakers that we sort of did on a, a turntable flying around the screen to try to balance how the, the colors and lighting looked on it. thing that's interesting about a movie like this is it because it took two years to make it, um, we had to we had to make promises that we weren't certain that we could fulfill at the beginning of this film, and uh, as any film of this scope, it's the it's a living document. It has to be able to change over the course of time, and the homemade costume was something that sort of uh, evolved over the over the course of time. The homemade costume wasn't necessarily in the first version of the script, or certainly not as it ended up being in the film. And, uh, and this is something that we uh, 
had to embrace. It was different than the costume that our hero character wore in the sense that it's baggy and floppy and it has folds and the wind affects it. So it's actually in some ways more challenging than the more polished or finished version of the Spider-Man character. Yeah, definitely we built, had to build an extra layer basically on top of our our slick kind of costume and do a cloth simulation. John Lee did that and had to add in all the secondary effects where he's flying and get those those ripples and the wind amplitude and frequency to just give him a sense of motion. Just multi-layers of wrinkles and wrinkling in there. You can see even on this sweatshirt here how many deep wrinkles and folds are. And this is a little thicker material than our homemade costume, but those kind of details really kind of give it realism. The guys who did the cloth uh, came up with the garment workers stamp <laughs> that they put on under the Migrant textile workers of, of image work. Well, there's an interesting thing about this cloth, and that is that when you make these costumes, you end up using the same kinds of techniques that real pattern makers use. So this cloth that you see here was actually fitted to the body of the character. Uh, it is, if so if it doesn't fit right in the chest, they might come back and take a, uh, a pleat. Yeah, retailer <laughs> re it, basically. Yeah, and it's actually tailoring the way a real tailor works. That call up the wall was a great shot by Spencer Cook and an example of what we finally came to for the movement of the character and in the first to try suspending him from a track and let him crawl along a flat surface, uh, a, a real person or a stuntman or Toby. But in fact, there's no way that you can get the correct weight distribution. Say when you lift one hand and you've got two feet and one arm, that the way that that pulls on the body, it just didn't look right. Here's the repeat of that other shot where he's going to the wall and then just misses it and the camera follows him around. Little known fact, in one of those shots we had a bus and on top of the bus there's lettering. We put PT-13 lettering on there. PT-13 was just one of our very, very early first building tests. So it was kind of an homage to that. The thing about this fabric in this, this sequence, I think you had mentioned this once, I think I heard you talking about this, Anthony, is that the fabric enhances the sense of motion. The idea that it's fluttering uh, helps the animators keep a sense of motion in the character because the fabric itself gives you an impression of the wind moving by. It makes the animation, uh, it, it complements it and makes you aware of how much clothing itself is what tells you the kind of movement a person is making. Of course, we've passed it, but there's a huge section of CG buildings we went through earlier in this sequence that a lot of work went into by Ken Han, Francisco, Lawrence, Dan Abrams, a bunch of really great lighters. So we did a couple of things here. One of them is this business of adding New York into uh, Los Angeles and adding New York into New York. And these, the buildings that you see in some of these sequences are from LA and some of them are from New York. And there are buildings that have been added. Uh, so as we go through here, you're gonna see more. Here's the first, first animated shot in the film coming up, yeah. the shadow going across the ceiling. That was the very first uh, one shot. Of, one of our first finals. R not that one, that's a live action. But the, this one is animated, funny enough. 
the rolling bear animation. <laughs> <laughs> we did quite a few different versions of that. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually, it must have been an interesting thing to animate Anthony, just sort of indirect animation, where you're animating the character and then casting a shadow. Right, I mean, because you've got to go by silhouette, so what looks right from one angle certainly doesn't look right from another. Yes, I remember you had a, you had a version of the character that you were using, and it, he was in an impossible contortionist pose to make a feasible-looking shadow. And it wasn't our final physiquing on the character, too. So his shape really wasn't perfect. So you had to manipulate that a little bit. Yeah. Remember, that was some of Koji's earliest physiquing there, part of a, you know, eight-month process. So physiquing being the, the creation of the model of the character. Yeah, actually, the goblin and Spider-Man were set up by two different people and set up in different ways. Um, Koji's version, uh, Koji Morihiro, set up Spider-Man, and uh, he approaches it uh, differently than J.J. Uh, Blumenkrantz did on Goblin. Yeah. Um, one of our guys, Al Alberto, helped set up the Goblin system, which was based on a underlying skeleton and muscle system and the goblin also had uh, in addition to having a skin over Willem's skin it had uh, an, a hard exoskeleton that had a little bit of flex in it but basically like slid uh, slid up and down uh, his arms and his his chest so it had to be a different technique than our spider-man the definition of the physical form of the people's bodies uh, also included a muscle system, right, Scott? Right. So that when they flexed, you could actually see a change, displacement in their, the forms of their body, the legs, the contours of their thighs and chests and arms. There was also breathing. I think Anthony had access to breathing controls. Again, those, those are the kinds of subtle details that tell the audience that this is a live character as opposed to a uh, CG simulation. And a lot of that work was based on reference footage that we took of the actors and stunt doubles at the start of the movie and put them through calisthenics and range of motion tests and basically took up days of their time to get all that setup work. But it paid off. I mean just having video reference of how, you know, like the, the quads flex and you know the deltoids and biceps and all through the body, the different muscles, how they sort of distort their volumes. It, it was really useful. And, and it had to be there because when he's in that custom-made costume, that's the only real feeling you get of this character being alive. Because the, the suit is tight, there's no clothing to flow and give the sense of movement. So it's, in that sense, it's more difficult to bring the character to life in that custom-made costume. I know this is yeah, I keep thinking, Anthony, of that shot in the fire building coming up way later where Spencer animated him landing, and it's just such a nice, subtle 
flex in his, in his quads on his legs as he lands. Unfortunately, it didn't make the cut, but it just gave a real sense of the weight of the landing there. When we first started doing the work on this movie, we did a test as a proof of concept for the character. And we used a, a model of a, of a body that came from another environment. It wasn't the real character, but we put a Spider-Man costume on him and actually had him climb up the side of a, a, a set piece, a real piece of set wall. And when we did the test, we shot uh, the set wall with a camera move with a stuntman crawling on his belly using a special rig that we designed to let him slide along the surface. The mechanical effects guys put that together. And then we shot the same camera move without the character. Then we took the version of the wall without the character on it, and we created a, a CGI version using this, this existing model of uh, this person. And Anthony and the guys, I think, it was it Spencer that animated that too? Oh, that the, first test? Yeah. Anyway, so we took this in and showed it to them, and I don't know who the lighters were. It was our first. Wow, that was a that was a long time ago. I remember. Uh, I think Greg Anderson was involved in that at that point. At any rate, so we gave it our best shot. This is before we'd actually worked out how we were going to do these characters, and we took it in. And the producer, sort of as a tongue-in-cheek joke, told the uh, executives who were watching the film, it was on film, that okay, so here's Tobey Maguire climbing up the wall, and they ran the piece of film. The executives all watched it. And of course, they lights come up, and they turn around, and they smile, and they say, "Well, it's great looking, but we know you're lying to us. That couldn't have been Toby. That had to be a stuntman." So they had mistaken the animated, computer-generated character that the animators had put on the wall, and that the the guys at SPI had lit and composited for um, a real image. So we knew we had a shot at being successful with the film when they decided that the uh, that our first test was indistinguishable from a real human being. The funny thing is you look back on those tests now and Spider-Man looks nothing like he does in the final film in terms of his costume and just even some of his body language. I mean, yeah. it, it, it never fails. On every movie we do a test on, you look back and that test looks so different than the final product. It's amazing. We were trying to arrive in these tests as well at the proper movement for this character to be a mix of man and spider. And that uh, anecdote of uh, Laura Ziskin watching in the screening room and saying, wow, you know, this character looks uh, uh, like a man, but well, like a spider. And then everybody looked around at each other and said, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then we knew we had more or less the kind of movement that we needed to sell this character. A couple shots ago, camera swinging down through the city shot in LA and that was a chance where a couple of us got a little cameo we were in yeah. Sunday on the street corner in fact Sam's in there Sam He's on the street corner waving and Bob the editor and you and I yeah but uh, you'd never be able to find it on the DVD and trying to give this uh, feeling of a real camera flying down through the street there were amplitude and frequency controls on the camera so that as the camera accelerated down into the valley of the skyscrapers, uh, into these canyons, uh, 
the camera would shake as if it were being shaken by wind buffeting and then as it came up it would slow down and, and start to steady out again and then sort of hang in the air just to give the feeling of a real operator following along with Spider-Man. Of course in this montage sequence they ended up cutting in some of our very early shots from the original teaser trailers and, and the early trailers. Also, if you, uh, if we tried to follow along with the character, that of course didn't work. You had to let the character go away from the camera, then come back to the camera, and, and let the character work the frame well, depending on where it was heading. Work it, you know, from bottom left to upper right, uh, or, or opposite, and again, give this feeling that there was a human operator behind this camera following this digital Acura around. What's he got to hide? She just needs to know if you want the chintz or the chenille in the dining room. Whichever one's cheaper. Mr. Jameson, it's like this. We double book page six. See, so both Macy's and Conaway's both... I was trying to figure out what was on that TV screen over there, what, what movie was showing. It was some... <laughs> they, they, it was switched just there, but it was a uh, some old horror film. Some monster, big uh, monster. Sam loves sneaking in little things in here, and I know he would never give away all his secrets, so I'm sure you have to watch it many times to find the Some gems. creature, Some creature there coming up out of the water. No, I think that's, those are, aren't those uh, like oil spill <laughs> victims? money for a picture of Spider-Man. He doesn't want to be famous, and I'll make him infamous. So just for fun, the interior of that office existed in three different places. <laughs> it was built on the stage once, and then it was, it was photographed in a location in, uh, in downtown L.A., and then it was also, I think, uh, rebuilt in another piece shot uh, yet again on a, se on a separate stage. And that sets up the interesting problem that there was about after Goblin comes crashing through into Jameson's office, and he then Spider-Man comes down outside the window and the goblin squirts him with this gas that knocks him out when he falls down the side of the building. That, that whole, because of the direction of the light for the shots to match, had to, to uh, do a matte painting of the building, right? Yep. I'm talking to you. Hey! Yes, Enrique, okay? I get you. Well, we've been not happy no more, you hear me? Don't roll your eyes at me. The filmmaking process is pretty interesting because you go out and shoot all this material and then they come back and they edit the thing together and there, there's times when complete sequences get left out and what you end up with is you end up with a sequence that was shot for a particular time of day having to be used at a different time of day or a shot even to the point where a shot that was made with the sun in one direction having to intercut with the sun in another direction or perhaps the sun gone altogether and those are those are things now, although they've always been a part of filmmaking, those are things now that, that we are using digital color timing and post-production techniques to try and smooth out so they don't create as big a uh, disconnect for the audience. The, the trick is to try and get the people to not be aware of being in a theater seat. The one thing we would never do, though, is flip a shot. <laughs> You're think, not being facetious. <laughs> right? I think, Anthony, you're still sensitive about that Times Square <laughs> shot of yours that they uh, flipped. The whole process, everybody, every studio, every group, uh, every visual effects house has a different uh, approach to how they're going to work together. 
and and even within a certain house, you're going to find a, every different group. Uh, certainly, every visual effects designer is going to have a different way of working. And on this, we were all together. All departments saw dailies together every morning, and I think that was healthy because everybody contributes. And sometimes it may hurt to hear what they have to say, but it usually makes it better. Right, and we would separate animation dailies where we were blocking out the, the shots with lighting and compositing dailies. And you know, typically, John Anthony and I and some of the supervisors would sit in all of them. All right. Hey, the Parker. How do you tell me who she is? It's interesting if you'll notice that we've had We've had stuff to say about the first part of the movie, but it hasn't been too intense. And it's sort of, I guess it's sort of the same kind of uh, uh, distribution that a lot of films have. But I think that there was an effort in this movie to focus on the people at the beginning of the movie, to really establish these characters and create some empathy before we got too carried away with the, uh, the visual uh, theatrics. Yeah, I mean, if it were to end now, you wouldn't really call it an effects film, would you? It'd just be uh... No, and I'd still be wondering what happened to the Green Goblin. <laughs> something in photography. Hello. Let's go! This was interesting. This was a fascinating sequence. Uh, it became evident that the character in this custom-made costume, when he would be animated, it seemed that the best explanation we could come up with was that as light arced across his skin, backlight, that it caused him to speed up. So we went through several speed changes in that sequence of the character. It's funny, we've, all three of us have seen this movie at least several times now, but the individual shots, like those shots you were just talking about, we've seen just hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, we see them at artist workstations when they're first being made. Uh, we see them in dailies played just on a loop, you know, maybe 30, 40 times a, a day. And then we see them on film just looped over and over again. <laughs> so we've seen this film many, many times over. The little shot where Spider-Man's on the ground and he, uh, he's kicking the bank robber and uh, then flips over the top of him. It, it, we went through so many different versions of this because as in a lot of shots, and, and some shots we'll see later, it's the same thing. This character is a superhuman, but we still wanted him to be a thinking character. So if everything is too well choreographed, it, it can have a false look to it as if the char character weren't thinking on his feet at that moment. It can look, uh, uh, you know, scripted, as it were, contrived. As of today Interesting thing about this character, and this is something that Sam said consistently, which is, I want to know what he's thinking. So when you have a character who has a face, the idea of establishing his thoughts is much easier than when you're dealing with a character who is only using his body because he's masked. And I thought that was one of the interesting things about the animation in the film. From my point of view anyway, you have a sense of what the character is thinking just based on the way his body's moving.
They made it tender. That's interesting because the actors actually had the same issues, you know, in terms of what our animators had to deal with, acting with the body instead of the face. So we both kind of had to come to our solutions separately. But you can't do this to me. I started this company. You know how much I sacrificed? Here's Willem Dafoe and his psycho routine again. Please, Norman. The board is... No effects used to enhance his expressions right. there. After the World Unity Festival. I really think the physicality of this character is a great part of what made the Goblin successful. Not only in the virtual character, but I mean the, the actor himself. He, he never, he's never static. He's always, there's always something going on with him. Which is interesting to me anyway, and I know it's an acting issue, but Toby's very quiet as an actor. He moves, his body moves around much less than... All those board members we just saw there, we had to make digital versions of to, uh, to mess with later in this Times Square sequence we see here. So this was one of the first sequences that we got live action photography on. Actually, it was the first sequence, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is where we were cutting our teeth. This is where we were working out how we were going to achieve some of these events. And this there's, is there's an exciting moment. I actually animated that balloon. That was Anthony's <laughs> personal animation. What Tough. did that take three or four weeks to do, Anthony? I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the first time, and then we went back and did it again. The uh, tough thing about this sequence is it's a daylight exterior. And without getting into specifics, this was uh, shot in New York. Uh, portions of it were shot in New York. Portions of it were shot on a stage um, at Columbia Pictures. Portions of it were shot in Downey and portions of it were generated in the computer. And it's not necessarily the same piece all the time. So when you watch the sequence, you can see uh, that we had to uh, create everything from very small scale to very, very large scale components to make this sequence uh, complete. You don't think there's any other way we could have done it Aside from shutting down Times Square for They talked to weeks. us about the potential of, we talked to them, excuse me, we talked to them about the potential of shutting down Times Square for the weekend. You know, they weren't going for it. <laughs> the, uh, the animation on the balloons in this, the, you know, the dynamics, which is a method of, of how the energy would flow through an object uh, if it were animated. Uh, or, or hit with an, with energy or something. In this case, the balloons are hit with um, air or, or an object, and Dan Kramer did a very nice job with the dynamics on making these balloons look very natural for their size and the way that it would move through them. Yeah, the balloons actually helped to tie some of these different environments together because they, they gave good foreground objects and they sort of bridged the gap between the different photography. And of course, we have our somewhat controversial sign replacements in this sequence. I think one of the things the balloon did, and uh, both foreground and middle ground, I if you look at Times Square from that position, we were on Dick Clark's balcony, the one he stands on during the New Year's celebration, looking down into Times Square, and then the people were below us, and if you stand there and look down, everything's in the distance, and you don't get to, you don't have much of a sense of perspective or scale. Uh, by putting the balloons into the sequence, it gave us some middle ground 
um, elements which allowed us to show not only the scope or scale of the environment but also to keep the screen alive with movement because as the camera moves you can see that the uh, balloons tend to give you a sense of foreground, middle ground, and background, which you wouldn't have if it, was, if it wasn't for them being there. And these are the series of multi-purpose pumpkin bombs. Another, another CG creation. I'm sure everybody noticed a couple minutes ago the, the Stan Lee cameos. And uh, originally he, had, uh, he was selling sunglasses at a stand and had a Stan and had a couple lines there that were pretty funny, but they didn't make the final cut. Yeah, he, one of his lines was, uh, yeah, they use these in the X-Men. <laughs> That's right. The, uh, th that was your cameo, right? <laughs> I ran by in front of the kid. Shot at the very last end of production. Yeah. There was a case of the uh, glider coming back to the goblin or flying around and just is going to sort of wait on him and, and be there when he needs to jump back on like a cowboy's horse, essentially. A lot of these ground shots of Green Goblin we used as lighting reference when we were developing our, our Green Goblin CG model and its lighting model. This there is, he is. My, uh, shot by Pedram uh, Boer and uh, it, it you know cuts together right right again with this live action goes back and forth between the two. Watch Goblin spin out <laughs> like you know. He's kicking off the lip of a wave yep. on a surfboard. Interestingly enough, the people in the street are made up of digital characters that generated, you know, originated in the computer. Uh, people from Downey, uh, and they were shot. We had, I think, we had 5,000 people one day, and then, then we had another day we had 1,000 people, and then it got down to like 250 people when people got tired of coming. And those crowds in the, in the streets are all made up, for the most part, of uh, separate pieces that are all uh, kind of sewn together to create this sense of um, much more scope than we actually had to photograph. Yeah, this is uh, Peter Knopf's sequence as a CG supervisor, and he was instrumental in coordinating the setup of a bunch of these different systems, including our crowd system and the character setup. And, he got a, like a little taste of just about every single pipeline, our building pipeline, our pin and tile pipeline for the background where we stitched together photography that John shot in New York and kind of all came together. Just for the sense of description, when Scott talks about a pipeline, it is the, that is the process that a given character or uh, environment has to go through to be completed. So once the principal photography is done, if that's a component of a shot, let's say a background plate in the case of this New York piece here, um, then all of the pieces begin to come together. And those pieces may take five weeks to assemble or a week to assemble or whatever. And we call the length of time that it takes to go from the beginning components of that shot to its completion a pipeline. And in some cases, the pipeline um, is tied to a character. In other cases, it's tied to the complexity of the shot. The last shot in the movie, it took six, I believe, six months. Yeah, six to eight months, depending on. To yeah. complete, and it's, it's not a pure pipeline, but it gives you a sense of how long it takes from the beginning to the completion of a shot. So we had to get uh, decisions on what we were actually going to do fairly early on in order to get the shots done by the time the film was going to be in the theaters.
What do you mean credible? I think by the time right. we got into really finishing or getting close to seeing the finish of that last swing shot, everybody wanted to do a bunch more shots like it, and we just we just knew we didn't have time in the schedule to do more. It's too bad. Well, you use every every moment. I mean, you know, I, I have yet to work on a movie where everybody said, "Oh, well, we're done. We'll just take the last week off." It, it always you always work until they, as Sam, Sam's quote for this movie, and I, I believe he's quoting someone else when he says they will pry the film from his cold, dead hands. And uh, that's pretty much the way that these kinds of movies always are. Well, the whole process, going from storyboard ar artist or script to storyboard artist to uh, Sam and coming over to us and then going uh, through you, John, and then down filtering through other people and going from me to the animators and then back in the other direction again and it goes back and forth through this hierarchy of people and you arrive at something along the way until Sam finally agrees upon it but everybody has their input into these things uh, and and different people input on on many different things you know a, a lighter can comment about the animation an animator might comment about, about the lighting, lighting. <laughs> you never know <laughs> And it, uh, it, it works a little... Is that a sore spot? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Not at all. We, uh, Anthony and I, always argue a little bit in just and dailies, but we won't do that now. <laughs> but... Uh, oh, I'll miss it. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it definitely that, that pre-visualization that Anthony was talking about, it's a little bit different for live-action photography and for when it becomes an all-CG shot. And for the live-action photography, a lot of it was used to just hash out where the camera should be and what sort of lenses were, were going to be used for the shoot and to just roughly block out for the day of the shooting. And in the case of all CG shots, it was actually much easier in a way because they were really the animators were really blocking out the shot in that case and it just went from previs to sort of finishing animation stages and straight into lighting without a photography uh, section in that, in that path. The previous, I think we talked about previsualization earlier, which is basically the simple geometry of a set or a location and simple geometry of the characters with uh, a virtual camera can be moved around and positioned to actually create shots. We did previsualization on shots that were primarily live action pieces as well, so that when we showed up on stage on the day to do the photography, we could tell the director of photography the focal length of the lens, the distance of the camera from the subject, the distance of the subject from the wall, and that of course was a place to begin. Um, storyboards or pre-visualization is never cast in stone. Um, it's always, again, uh, a living document, but it gave everyone an exhibit to work with in order to determine what the needs of that shot were on a given day. And by doing that, you make yourself more efficient. You get, put, you get to put more of the money that you spend on the screen as opposed to putting the money into doing fix-its or changing your mind. Of so course. Pre-visualization was good. One of our guys, John Schmidt, was great about working out a lot of those things for our shoot days. and ended up also doing printouts for them and went through about a ream of paper making printouts used for the shooting. Here comes uh, the goblin. 
so, you know, we had to interface with the mechanical guys and the, the stunts guys because in many cases the goblin was there on a practical glider and sometimes it was Willem on the glider doing the, the action and sometimes it was a stunt person. So we had to have intimate communication on an ongoing basis. We used the pre-visualization as the exhibit that we all uh, discussed together and it allowed us to show up with the proper tools for the day's photography as well as uh, the post-production work that had to be done in visual effects. There's a shot by Koji Morihiro, the guy who actually uh, made uh, Spider-Man, made the uh, uh, setup for Spider-Man animation. And uh, Jeff Stern lit that shot, and I remember first seeing like his lighting on that shot, it was such a nice golden hour look, sort of influenced how we ended up on that sequence, really, I think. This is a great little sequence to get a feeling for the kind of uh, psychotic behavior that Goblin has and what I looked to to give different uh, facets of his behavior in the performance. Well, to each his own. I chose my path, you chose the way of the hero. And they found you amusing for a while, the people of this city. This was also the, the sequence shot on stage and we decided uh, that the backing actually didn't have kind of the right contrast level so we, it's a post-process, did some adjustments on the background. Put some steam in. And oh, and the other interesting thing was because of dialogue changes, we actually ended up obscuring the goblin's mouth a little bit in some of these shots, so the lip sync wouldn't, wouldn't be off. They definitely did a lot of uh, editorial tinkering with this shot during the, pr the process of making it. We went through a lot of different uh, versions of, of his performance in this. Was when the, the glider's about to come in, he's going to jump on it and fly away but in his speech, trying to get across in his body what Sam wanted him to say, we went through different versions because at one time we were repeating what he was doing to his head uh, in, the, in this shot in here. I think there's something coming up where he puts his fingers to his head. Well, that's cut out there, isn't it? Um, but he, he flies away and gives this Shakespearean gesture to him. It's funny, for characters, the actors, uh, Willem Dafoe and for Tobey Maguire, one who's a very still actor and the other one who's a very animated actor, it's very interesting that once they put the costumes on, you, uh, the uh, somewhat melodramatic kinds of motions become totally acceptable. You don't, you don't balk at them simply because they replace the business of the guy's face. It's very, to me anyway, it's very interesting that those, some of the motions and the positions that the characters get into when they're masked uh, seem pretty extreme, but don't seem extreme at all in the context of the story. So how'd it go? Uh, they said I needed acting lessons. A soap opera told me I needed acting lessons. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, little wire removal and uh, com some composite shots that Image Works didn't do. We worked with some vendors, CIS, PostLogic, Digiscope. They did a lot of the work, a lot of the work coming up in the next rain sequence. The thing that's kind of interesting about filmmaking in contemporary terms is it used to be you couldn't remove wires or posts or rods. And as a result, the production had to be very careful about what they put into a scene. Uh, contemporary, although I'd like to say this production wasn't bad that way, 
uh, the, on films I have worked on, there's been situations where they've left the truck, the food truck, in the background just because it was quicker to go ahead and shoot the scene the way it was and have the truck removed in post-production. And uh, the whole business of wires now and posts to support people to make them fly and do other things is rampant. I mean, every every other shot in these sequences, not this sequence, but in sequences like this action sequence, oftentimes have support rods or tubes or, you know, cranes or people's hands that you end up having to go back and paint out. It's one of the things that digital imagery uh, has has provided to, to the filmmaker is you can literally take the eyes from one take and the mouth and the nose from another take and paint them together and make a new shot out of them. Pixel Magic was another vendor I forgot to mention. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know we had we had so many of these wire removal and fix it shots they all just kind of blend together. I can't even remember where all of them are anymore. Toby has an interesting fighting style. It's not really martial arts. It's sort of this kind of cross, as Anthony was calling it, between human and superhuman. You know, he throws punches, conventional boxing type punches, but he also uses almost judo type moves. And it's kind of an interesting uh, mix of uh, a collage of fighting styles, which I think uh, gives him a personality all his own. I love the shot in that sequence where basically somebody like throws a bucket of water on him. <laughs> it's just so uh, unmotivated if you look at this shot out of context. I felt sorry for Toby in the shot. I, uh, it's, it's difficult because I was there when they were shooting it. it. It's difficult for me to see it as a romantic moment because his whole sinuses were completely full of water and he was trying to breathe out of his mouth as well as he could through the wet fabric. Boy, that spider web does some interesting stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> you just press a button, <laughs> up you go. That's right. A lot, of, a lot of times in those shots, even though you don't see anything, we've uh, done a little extra movement around and overriding kind of post move to just reframe or add a little extra motion to those shots. Oh, and there, this is another. This is kind of the first of our daytime. CG buildings in the background of some of these shots. Except for Times Square. Except for Times Square. Some beautiful work on the webs coming up where they waft in the wind after he goes up to get back into the window. This shot came, that shot came together pretty fast at the end of the, end of the show. That was a kind of last minute pull together shot.
Okay, so this is the fire sequence, and the fire sequence contains components shot in New York. This piece, for instance, is all location in New York, as is that and that. And then once we go inside, we were on a set that was constructed variously, once in a parking lot in Downey, and then again to shoot subsequent components of the shot or scene in um, a parking lot in, uh, Santa, in uh, Culver City. And I, it all goes together very nicely. And this is a, a great example of um, the integration of this character seamlessly into a scene. I think this is a terrific shot that uh, it is in this sequence, which we'll point out when we get there. But There's a great transition between real actors and digital right. actors in this. That was a great shot by Ken Morrissey coming into the window. Yeah, and that, and, that, and that web animated by Todd Boyce was a web that Sam kept coming back to and back to as a reference of kind of floating web where it wafted up into the air, and he really liked that quality. We tried to get that in some other shots. The actors were actually in this set as it was on fire, uh, wearing lycra, <laughs> which is flammable. So you can imagine how excited they were about being there. I don't know whether Willem talked about this or Toby, but they, the, uh, it was quite hot on that set. We had to wear a complete, uh, if you were going to be on the set during photography, you wore a complete firefighter's uniform, including a respirator. This is Spencer Cook uh, in a really, really beautiful shot where all the elements come together very, very well. As a, a lot of people thought this was a real actor. Yeah, Greg Anderson did a great job lighting that shot too. And Greg Deroshi compositing it. Jeff Lynn doing this work. Tom Gurney doing this work. Razorbats exploding. I thought it was a very well choreographed sequence too. I think the, the transitions, Sam uses those transitions, which are sort of, they're somewhat dated, but they're really interesting because it gives a certain personality to the film. The flame over transitions, and there's other places where he's used wipes and interesting kinds of fades and things. I picked up a fruitcake. Oh, thank you, Mr. Osborne. We're so glad you, you could come. And who is this lovely young lady? Um, MJ, I'd like you to meet my father, Norman Osborne. Dad, you know... We worked on this movie through the transition of the September 11th disaster in New York, and I was going to mention it earlier, we didn't remove the uh, World Trade Center from any of our shots. Uh, the only shot that had uh, the World Trade Center in it that was taken out of the film potentially was the one that was in the trailer, and the reason they chose to not use it is because the World Trade Center was featured. So they felt that that was too painful. Is that you? So the other little known fact is, John, when you shot the footage after September 11th for the top of the buildings in the last swing, the Twin Towers weren't in there. And for that last shot to make it consistent, Dan Eaton actually put those towers in there. Bit of a and this is our famous blood shot. So this was a bone of contention. This is a shot Anthony always teased me about looking like ketchup, which I still to this day don't think it looks like ketchup. 
I think so, I think that the shot wouldn't have worked unless it looked like ketchup. <laughs> Whoa! Well, I was hoping for some kind of big conflict. I guess that was pretty quick. I tease Scott about this a lot, but I think it had to be thick because real blood would just splatter horizontally. And uh, yeah, I was ready to jab Anthony and get some blood experiments to really test what it would look like. Thank you. Yeah. Now then, everybody sit down and we can say grace. Oh. Okay. Here we go. So, New York City, contemporary New York City, real New York City with all the bits and pieces. Um, we started out using a technique called photogrammetry where we were going to basically create large chunks of the city based on multiple position camera photographs of New York. And it turned out that uh, that technique didn't provide us enough resolution, meaning that the buildings that we created that way didn't have enough detail in them for the camera to get close to them or as close as we were going to get in this film. We then decided, instead of doing that, to use conventional um, surveyor's instruments and to create a mathematical model of buildings in much higher detail and to use still photographs of the surfaces of those buildings to uh, be stretched back onto those that geometry. So we had the shape of the building, and we had a picture of the texture, the surfaces that were on the outside of the building, and we placed those surfaces onto the building. It's called mapping, mapping the texture on. And as you look at this, uh, as we continue through this, um, you're going to see um, extensive use of this technique because we had buildings in the middle ground, we had buildings in the foreground, and we had buildings in the distance, some of which were in original photography and some of which were in um, were added in after the fact. The other thing the weakness photogrammetry had was you kind of tend to get the built-in lighting of the day. So it depends on what, you know, the how overcast it is, what the angle of the sun is, what time of day built in and you don't have a lot of leeway there. Our buildings actually had to hold up for different sun angles and different times of day, day and night. So what our texture painters, our main texture painter guy being Carrie, who ended up taking all the photos, what they did was to paint out a lot of that detail that we were going to add back in later with lighting. And also paint up the edges so we could tile and reuse some of that photography to extend buildings and make them a little bit longer for different shots. Why don't you talk about the tiles? That's an important thing that we used in this movie. The, the tiles in terms of on Just the how we did it. Yeah, well, we we started out making this whole building system because we knew we we're going to have huge complex scenes that had a lot of geometry in them so we ended up making our buildings as building blocks and, and we used a system that Steve Levitas created in Houdini software to easily instance pieces and assemble them all together and hand in hand with that was a notion where when we took these photos they had to seam up on the edges. So 
If you look at real buildings, there's a lot of variation in terms of color and hue and lighting across the faces of these buildings. And our texture painters had to balance those out and sort of unbake those out of the textures and make them so they could seam up together and uh, work generically. Well, the beautiful thing about the tiles is you sort of get this, this hemisphere uh, which functions as a plate. But a normal plate, you just have what the camera has shot and you've got to work within that. But the, when you have this hemisphere of, of tiles that have been stitched together, you can take the camera and move it all around and have the freedom to create your own camera move within this, this background. Right, you're talking about our pin and tile yeah. system, yeah. which was a, a, another technique we used to put behind our CG buildings. And Basically, it's the camera's sitting in one place, and you take a shot straight forward, and you tilt up a little bit and take a shot up, and you take one to the right and one to the left, until you have all of these photographs that uh, define or capture the panorama before you. And if you've ever looked at uh, David Hockney's art, you see uh, some of this kind of tiling he does. He, we did it in a much more precise fashion, but far less artistic than he did. Uh, at any rate, it's a whole lot of single images which are combined together to create a much larger image at a very high resolution. And that high resolution end, uh, allows you to move in closer and further away and to pan and move up and down on this, uh, this big domed uh, projection. It's a, it's a technique that's been getting more and more in, in use over the last couple of years and many years ago you'd have to assemble it in 3D and render out frame by frame and nowadays at ImageWorks we've got a system worked out where we do it in our last compositing stage so it's much much faster. How are you? You okay about that? One of the interesting things about visual effects in this movie and pretty much all other movies is that you start out with a script that always has about twice as much stuff in it as you can afford to do, uh, using resource as a definition of time and money. You always have about twice as much material as you have the resource to produce. So over the course of the creation of the film, you have to go back through and constantly be on top of deciding where you're going to put the resource. Um, in our situation, we knew that we had to create a, a virtual version of the Spider-Man character, we had to create a virtual version of the Goblin character, and we had to create a virtual version of portions of New York to allow us to do the kinds of camera moves that we wanted to do in that city because they weren't allowing anybody to swing through the streets of the city. So those were our primary um, allocations of resource. Then as the script developed, as we worked on the movie and over the course of time, the story became clearer to all of us, we had to constantly reevaluate where we were putting our efforts or our resource. And uh, one of the things that was, um, we also knew we had to do the web. The web was a critical component of the resource allocation. But as we continued on through the process, uh, we constantly had to reevaluate what it was that was being put into the film because we'd get new sequences that they wanted to try to make a story point and then, we'd, then that sequence would be evaluated in terms of the resource allocation and then abandoned because it was too expensive. And that was going on for the live action stuff as well. And it's just a very, uh, it requires that you be very flexible. You have to be willing to 
uh, abandon a scene that you really like or a technique that you spent months developing because it no longer applies in the story. And that's one of the hardest things in doing visual effects. Actually, I think it's one of the hardest things in filmmaking is giving, giving away your babies, so to speak, uh, in pursuit of a, a more effective storytelling. And you also have to be willing to um, meet an uh, impossible challenge at the last moment. When we were doing this film, it wasn't unusual in the last two or three weeks of the work for the uh, director and the editor to come up with a shot that required uh, some heroic performance. And I think uh, we talked about one of the shots earlier that Scott had mentioned, which was Spider-Man swinging uh, through the buildings on his way to the fire. And that shot came out uh, through animation and uh, lighting and, and uh, compositing in record time. So you have, to be, uh, you have to be light on your feet and you have to be willing to uh, pursue the end goal of the story first and foremost. Seems like on, on every film you always promise something that you have no idea whether or not you can do. Have to. And, and that's generally how new ways of doing things are created. Well, you know, it's interesting to me is that Sam's very pragmatic about this. I mean, he chose in many cases to use practical visual, uh, practical effects, meaning mechanical effects or stunts, uh, where in other filmmakers that I have worked with have defaulted to a digital solution almost immediately. He would explore the more traditional methods pretty extensively before deciding to allocate that visual effects resource to the creation of a single shot or even a sequence. And I think that the, um, that, that shows up in his understanding of this story. He knows where he wants to put the money, so to speak, the resource in terms of the telling of the story. He pretends like he doesn't, but there's no one Peter. Yeah, there's a, just another note, there's a sort of different class of shot that's become more popular recent, and that's recently, and that's kind of these product placement or product replacement shots and <laughs> we kind of went through a, a, a sequence earlier where he's shooting at a can and of course we replaced products. <laughs> Three different kinds of cans. <laughs> we went through different types of cans that were in there and then there's a uh, critical phone call shot coming up here where Toby's speaking into the phone and it was a particular brand of payphone that Nobody wanted to see in the shot, so we <laughs> had one of our vendors take it out. So there's a lot of attention to those sort of details that happens nowadays, and you don't even think about. Go home. I think people must think I that uh, people will want to drink the same things and eat the same things that Spider-Man does. So well, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do. I personally. Eat almost every sugar-flavored cereal. How do you, think, has he, how do you think he makes all that web? <laughs> exactly. One of those on your face since Mary Jane was here. Hey, you were supposed to be asleep. <laughs> you know, you were about six years old when MJ's family moved in next door. And when she got out of the car and you saw her for the first time, you grabbed me and said, Aunt May, Aunt May, is that an angel? Gee, did I say that? You sure did. So now it's going to get fast and furious. This last portion of the movie goes at about 100 miles an hour. She's still his girl. We'll never be able to talk fast enough to keep up with it. We should, uh, we should go through all the 
methods that we were thinking of. There's a moment when he has to jettison himself to the Queensboro Bridge, and he attaches his webs to the top of these flagpoles and pulls himself backward and then lets go and springs off. And we went through several different ideas on how to get him over there from uh, from cannons to clock springs to yeah and basically so much of this next sequence is just all virtual sets that it gave us a lot of flexibility to explore ideas like that yeah the thing that's interesting to me is that there was no uh, we paid very little attention to physics <laughs> the truth of the matter is that I'm a stickler for physics I really like to make stuff kind of stay within the practical world and that that probably is a disadvantage because I think, um, actually it's probably a good balance because I think that Sam and the writers penchant is for writing stuff that's so fantastic that if you were to see it on the screen you might not buy it. So I temper that particular tendency on their part by going, well you know, physically speaking this couldn't happen. So the sequences that you see here uh, swing from one end of the pole to the other in terms of things that are practical and things that aren't. But the truth of the matter is that I think it all goes together in a way where you don't, you're not really aware of it. I think that the willing suspension of disbelief has been uh, achieved here. By the way, in a couple of these little shots, that's where Anthony and I also got little cameos where we're people on the ground, but that's my daughter right there. Two yeah. <laughs> that's Chloe. That was a shot by Brad Booker of him looking into the uh, into the tram. And I think it was a shot that was done early on, and I think Sam liked the feeling, the acting that was coming from the yeah. Goblin. Lit by Kevin Hahn. It was one of our first lighting jobs on Goblin too. So this is interesting. This is a kind of an integration of all manner of mechanical effects too. <laughs> we photographed explosions as separate pieces against black so that we could combine them in those images and enhance them. There are miniatures in here. There are miniatures combined with computer generated cables and cable cars and people and this is a real potpourri of the visual effects techniques. Um, we shot from the top of the Queensboro Bridge we originally were going to be able to climb to the top of the bridge and actually photograph. Here's Anthony's shot of him uh, being shot to the bridge with the flagpoles. That's Chris Williams, Ken Morrissey, Bill Diaz did a great job of him coming through the bridge. And then James Paris uh, has a, does a shot where he comes over the top here. And this is a real great shot in the film, a really beautiful shot. The so this is, again, this is mechanical effects boys had to provide wind and explosions and fog and smoke and all kinds of things. So it's a, another case where the departments had to collaborate uh, extensively. We did an awful lot of photography on Roosevelt Island in New York. It was exciting to be, to have our own Roosevelt Island tram car. We rented it for the night. It was ours. We could make it go back and forth wherever we wanted to. It was terrific. Um, one of the other things that pre-visualization did for us is when you have a sequence like this where the points of view are not necessarily on the same level, you have to establish the angle of the camera relative to the live action subjects. And that's where pre-visualization allowed us to say to the cameraman, the camera needs to be 40 feet below the subject on a 15 millimeter lens, 30 feet away. And those 
kinds of uh, details uh, were what allowed us to photograph our characters in some cases against green screen and then put them back into original photography of the real bridge or a CGI version of the bridge. And uh, Ken Hahn was a CG supervisor of this sequence and did a great job pulling together all these different green screen elements and CG characters and environments and putting up with listening to me talk about uh, the little black levels on, and different <laughs> variations uh, across the images all the time. This is a very difficult area to keep, keep the character doing the same thing all the time so that there's a continuity of what he does in the physical world because you have a temptation to make the character do something human and you can't, you can't let yourself fall into that. Just like before when he flew through the, or, or was uh, shooting web and going through the bridge and he comes up, flies over the top, comes down and lands and I had him landing so hard and, and there was big follow through and nobody wanted to, uh, I mean, it, Sam said, you know, he can't do that. And I said, well, he has to do that. And then the more I thought about it, he was right, because he is not a real person. He is Spider-Man. As opposed to this, which a real person could easily do. <laughs> lots and lots of pieces went into the making of this sequence. And one of the toughest part of this sequence is that you're working with such a large scale set piece, this bridge. When you get close enough to see the characters, it's hard to see the bridge. When you get wide enough to see the bridge, it's hard to see the characters. So this was a real uh, tour de force of uh, editing and design of sequence to try and integrate all of these pieces together so you had a sense of the scope of the environment but we're still close enough to the characters to read their emotional content. Just it was, it was interesting too just setting up all the lighting of our virtual sets and we matched different photography pieces and sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. We ended up just dialing in different fall-offs and bright and dark areas for different shots. Interesting thing about this sequence, this is our hulking ruin sequence and Spider-Man gets pretty beat up in this sequence and we uh, made a full CG version of Spider-Man completely beat up and, and Fede, one of our guys, painted beautiful maps and it's just this pristine CG model that looks fabulous and by the end of the cut that they made, it was no longer in there so <laughs> we hope in the sequel there's some area where he gets beat up pretty similarly to this so we could use that model, but I'm sure we won't. That was, the, that was the shot uh, that because of the rating system, he had, a, he had a mouthful of blood spewing out in that shot. And to get the rating down to PG-13, we had to turn that blood from red to clear to be spit. And we had to take out quite a bit of it so it didn't look like he was spewing a fountain out of his mouth. This was an interesting solution. Yeah, this is web. this. Well, this is also a situation. This is of course a new kind of web, but also had to work. It had to look like the real web because <laughs> it was already shot. Todd Boyce spent a lot of time 
weaving that pattern, making it match the next shot. Spun your last web, Spider-Man. Had you not been so selfish. This sequence really got cut down. I think at one point it went on for about two or three days. There's one of the things that happens is all of these sequences end up being distillations of much, much larger uh, vintages. <laughs> the razor bats used to be in the sequence. Well, too. of course. In fact, there were razor bats, and I think there was even another kind of thing there at were, some point. In this sequence, there were flocks of them. Yeah. All, they were all over the place. But again, I think that the, this distillation really focuses on the development of the characters, and that's sort of, I think, the saving grace of this movie is that you're paying more attention to the people involved than you are to the... Action. Action, yeah. This is definitely a homage to yeah. <laughs> some of Sam's earlier movies, yeah. Army of Darkness or whatever. A lot of speed up on this thing. <laughs> Did that wall move or no? <laughs> Can't give away all the secrets. I'm sorry. <laughs> Again, the spider sense comes into play here. This was done, the spider sense thing was a huge combination of many elements. It's a beautiful digital blade that comes out of this. Yeah. Again. It comes out of the glider. It's uh, photography done on the set, a huge amount of paintwork, some CG components that were generated uh, in three dimensions and then painted and added in. The glider, which in this case is a virtual version of the glider, a CGI version of the glider. And that's combined with our, uh, our actually live actor in the foreground. Yeah, for the spider scent shot coming up, Dan Kramer did a great job pulling pieces together because we ended up shooting different ideas, motion control, and the end result ended up being sort of a combination of some of those ideas. So we had to piece together different photography. And Godspeed, Spider-Man. That shot right there. We also actually had to try to give a character to the glider to have it in a certain feeling, as silly as that may sound. So it had to have well, it's a back slight to your, character. Your faithful, uh, your faithful servant, the glider, yeah. hanging out waiting mm -hmm. to uh, take care of the, uh, the threat. Yeah. And of course that sequence was cut down as well to get into the PG-13 rating, so some of our work was cut out of there as well. Sure, in the director's cut, the, the R-rated version that'll show up. Have you done? A lot of these shots, you know, just have to be leading towards sequels to come, setting up some of the situations. 
So this is set up before the, the, the set up before the final shot, in which Sam had a small request that uh, the animation in this last shot be uh, more incredible, uh, more astounding, the the all-time best animated shot in history, and that was all he asked for. And uh, then we went away and tried to do that, and this went through many, many generations of versions. But it, it was interesting to see as we got down, I think John has said before, what, it, what is it, you say, you know, 50% of your time you spend getting to what, 90% of the money, yeah. and then the rest 10% of, of the shot, getting it done, you, you're spending another 50% of your time. And it's, all the camera moves and the animation, it, there were such minute adjustments on these things at the end. They were just one frame of, of a change of a move where the camera would come close to a building or move away. And uh, it really got down to a beautiful, beautiful shot that I think is uh, well-remembered and great animation by Peter Gilberti. And uh, lighting and compositing-wise, it, it came down to the wire, too. Like our artists, Mark Rienzo, Jeff Stern, Dan, Dan Abrams, Lawrence, Danny, and all these guys in the last week literally just working around the clock, sleeping under, under their desks. And it's a funny story, the president of our, our company, Tim, Sar Tim Sarnoff, had to come down and force these guys to go home and walk them out. And we had people drive them home so they wouldn't crash <laughs> on the way home. But that's how dedicated these people were to getting this, this last shot out. It took about seven months yeah. for this last shot. And I think, I think the key to it is when you watch a shot, and I, you know, I mean, if you've seen the movie, in a theater where it's on a bigger screen. I think what it does is it actually succeeds in getting you to sort of be physically involved in the business of swinging through the city. And the other thing it does, I think, in terms of a storytelling component, is it gives you a sense of what it's like to be Spider-Man, the good side of being Spider-Man, not the irony that's being presented here where he has to deny the woman of his dreams, but the part that makes you understand why he goes forward, why he sees some kind of um, real future in the business of being responsible for this great power that he wields. It comes along with some great fun, too. And I think that, that this shot embodies all of those things. And certainly, as far as I'm concerned, embodies the best of the work of the visual effects in the movie. to tell her how much I loved her. I can't. You can't what? Tell you... everything, I mean... there's so much to tell. Yeah. There's so much to tell. I want you to know... that I will always be there for you. I will always be there to take care of you. I promise you that. I will always be your friend. Only a friend? Peter Parker? 
That's all I have to give. Whatever life holds in store for me, I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. When the performance of the character uh, in the beginning, he's not quite sure what move to make, where to shoot his web, how to move around it. Where, and all through the film, he develops, whereas in, in this shot, you feel that he knows exactly where he's going and exactly what he's doing, and he's completely in control of his movement. I think uh, just a lot of the photography ended up really helping us out in the last shot, too. The photography that, uh, that we got on that Sunday in downtown LA, swinging through the cars, and that sort of everything sort of built off of that. and. John, the stuff you got in, in New York for the tiles, sort of golden hour looking tiles that we processed and pushed a little bit more. And uh, that sort of grounded and gave us a base to build our virtual environment around. Yeah, and it's, it also, we had good success with finishing the buildings off and being able to figure out how to use them in the lighting environment or using the lighting environment to make them feel more real. So when you get to the point of watching uh, not only what he's doing but what's happening in the environment around him, it's uh, very spectacular. The composition, the choice of buildings, the color compositing, the whole deal, even if it were something that were done for real and, and it wasn't put together as separate elements, it would be a very uh, successful shot. Someone told me
Spider-Man! 